Good afternoon. We are thankful that you are with us this afternoon and look forward to a few moments of study here. Uh, we have a few uh, somewhat visitors in our midst, not exactly visitors, but uh, good to see a few with us today that aren't regularly. And we're thankful that you've come to our opportunity to study here and to worship God. We are continuing a series this afternoon that we have been going through for several years now, sort of spread out on purpose on words and words in the Bible and how they matter. Uh, I've brought up here before with me the books that I have. I had purchased copy, copies of both the devotional book and the study guide that go along with this uh, one-word study. Uh, it was put out, again, several years ago now, probably almost 10 years ago, by a bunch of different brethren, uh, headed up by a few who got a lot of different writers, a lot of different preachers to write. Uh, there is a book that's more of a study guide for maybe a, a teacher or a preacher like myself that's going to be teaching the material. And then there's also a, a devotional book that has a, a five-day for five days, just the five days of the week, uh, work week there, kind of middle of the week, to, to have a devotional thought each day that go along with the words. I've taken that and kind of mixed it together to just allow us to take a look at some of these different words uh, just in one lesson. Uh, it's meant to be a weekly study, sort of a, I guess, a one-year study, if you will, 52 words, but we've spread it out just to one a month that allows us to do some other things and have other lessons uh, during that time. But uh, hopefully you picked up on a few of those. Sometimes, as we're going to talk about today, the, the Hebrew words or the Greek words don't mean much to us. Sometimes they're very interesting and sort of give us a little insight into maybe, uh, you know, what the Bible is trying to tell us. Other times, it's just kind of the word that's there uh, that's translated that way. Uh, but we have hopefully gained some insight to the, what God is trying to tell us, how he wants us to live by looking at some of these different things. The word for today, this afternoon, is the word kingdom. It's the word kingdom. Now, we talked a little bit about the kingdom on Wednesday night. If you were in our auditorium class on Wednesday night, and some of you weren't for various reasons, uh, but we began just a, a couple of weeks' study on the idea of, of dispensational premillennialism or premillennialism, talking a little bit about some of the things that go along with that, sort of just a question that had come up, a suggestion of something to study. But with that, we took a look at this word kingdom. And what, how does the Bible use the word kingdom? Because, by the way, that is very important when it comes to that idea of premillennialism, what people say is going to hap happen, uh, end-time kind of things, the rapture and the antichrist and all these things that are used. Well, what are we talking about? Well, whether people really understand or know, they're caught up in a little bit about this idea of the kingdom and whether or not the kingdom has come and what that is trying to say. So we're going to do a little bit of a study this afternoon and think about uh, some of the words that are used and what they're kind of trying to tell us, and then the lesson, of course, will be yours. Now, if you have a bulletin in front of you, and you like to fill in the blanks as we go along, as our projectors uh, are still down, although I will give a brief update, I guess, T. Fry. Uh, Travis let us know he's been kind of our... Uh, uh, liaison going back and forth, I guess, between the company that, that's quoted some of the materials for us. We hope that maybe we'll have everything installed and up and running in the next couple of weeks, certainly within the next two or three weeks. So there's uh, some hope there, some excitement that we'll get those back and have those available. I've still been putting some blanks in the bulletin uh, that for you to kind of go along. Some people like to make notes that way. Uh, but this is one of those words, this is one of those lessons, I should say, not only do I usually and frequently butcher the pronunciation of words, but much less that you would know how to spell them just for me trying to say them. So, if you have a bulletin in front of you, there are a couple of Hebrew words, and let me just give them to you. The first one uh, is spelled like this, M-A-M-E-L-A, -E 
K-A-H. So M-A-M-E-L-A-K-A-H. The second word is similar to it. M-A-L-E, like male. M-A-L-E-K-U-H. So you see how they're similar there in their original uh, format. The second word, uh, Malkuth, is kind of uh, these, both of these words are translated kingdom in the Old Testament. Now, if you have your Bible, and I ask you to turn, first of all, to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. In the material that is presented in these, uh, these studies, there are passages upon passages for the different ways and different times that these words are used, and we certainly don't have time to go through all of them. But in the Old Testament, these two Hebrew words are translated uh, kingdom. The words are used to describe a, a couple of different things, or I guess three. They're used to describe, first of all, the influence of kingdoms on the earth. So you take with that, the, this is a fleshly kind of idea, right? First of all, it's used to describe the influence of kingdoms of the earth. So now we're talking about what? We're talking about, well, Babylon. We're talking about Assyria. These different kingdoms that we read about in the Old Testament. Secondly, now they're used to describe the reality of the kingdom of Israel. The idea that this was a, a kingdom, if you will. Now, as we know, they didn't always have a king. In fact, the reference, if you're jotting down things, sometimes it may be of interest to you. You might be able to go back and study but next to the reality of the kingdom of Israel, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 20, verses 18 and 20, talk about this idea of Israel. Now, at that point, Israel doesn't have a king. You think kingdom, you think, well, they've got to have a king, but that's not the case at this time in Deuteronomy. As we discussed Solomon, and as we had discussed even last week, King Ahab just a little bit, Israel had kings. But another way these words are used is to talk about the reality of the kingdom of of Israel. The third way is to describe God's sovereign rule over all the kingdoms in the Hebrew Bible. God's sovereign rule over all kingdoms in the Hebrew Bible. We think about there, we think about this idea that yes, God has is sovereign, he has sovereign rule, and we, we it's a great study to think about King Cyrus and others and how they were used by God, how years before God can talk about King Cyrus and the role that he would play. Uh, just a few moments ago with our young people, we watched a video, a short video over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because we're getting ready to start a study on that in conjunction with the Last of Leaders program. And I showed them that video and it talks about the kings who were over the kingdoms during this time, King Artaxerxes and other kings, King Cyrus, who were going to make the decree that they could go back to Jerusalem and build the temple, rebuild the temple, and rebuild the walls. God is sovereign over all of these kingdoms that are mentioned in the Bible. Now I ask you to turn to Psalm 145 verses 11 through 13. Let's look, notice it together before we make the point. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. You have to go back to verse 10 to notice there the works and the saints. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now, that word that is used there, I think the word that is translated most often is the first word that was used there, mamlaha. And that's the word that is translated most often as kingdom. If you were to look at the outline in front of you, a bulletin, I'll still give you the blanks 
to fill in and go along as we go through the lesson. Uh, but we appreciate so much uh, Travis and, and Brian and, and several others that have been here over the last few days. They've spent a lot of time uh, trying to get new things installed. And when that goes a little awry, trying to get other things working so that we have uh, the opportunity and the ability to, to use the screens. Uh, but that's still uh, ongoing. But we appreciate their work. We're thankful that you're here this morning. Appreciate Brian leading us in singing. Appreciate uh, the prayer. Appreciate so much Gabe's uh, thoughts for us and even just sometimes reading a basic song that we've sung a lot. Many of you have sung like myself many times in your life, but to go back and try to think about the lyrics, especially as it pertains to our partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, we're thankful to everyone that's had a part so far and to all of you who are with us. We do have some visitors amongst us. I don't know if there's anyone who it's their first time ever here, but we're thankful that you've come our way this morning. And let me just remind you one more time that we've got a full day that we'd love for you to stay and be a part of. We will have a lunch here in just a few moments, a sandwich a lunch that we have planned. And then our 1.30 service will be slightly abbreviated, uh, but we will have our 1.30 service. And then we will have the teen singing here at 2.30. I uh, look forward to having a good crowd, and if you've never been a part of that, we'd love for you to, to come back or certainly to, again, to stay all day and, and enjoy that because it's very encouraging to see uh, a lot of young people together and to encourage ourselves with a time of song. And so we hope that you can be a part of any and all of that through the rest of the day. If you do have an outline in front of you, or if you were with us last week, you know that we began a series, and many of you gave some encouraging words. I'm always appreciative of that, but we're going to begin studying some of the names of God. And I just decided today, especially since we'll have a bit of a shortened service at 1.30, that we'd go ahead and include another name this afternoon. We may not do this every service for the next few weeks. Uh, I think I shared with you last week as well in the lesson, there have been a couple uh, that are particularly exciting for me to think about that I really wanted to preach on. Uh, a preacher friend of mine, one of my good friends, texted me this week and asked what I was preaching on. I told him, he said, well, what's your favorite one? What are you excited? And I, I told him a couple that I had been looking forward to and then decided to expound this, to, to bring it out into several lessons. And I appreciate your kind words that many of you were encouraged by just the introduction last week, the importance of thinking about the idea that God's names tell us so much about him. They relate to us who he is. They tell us about his person. He relates to us as people. He shows us his promises through his names. And it's, it's going to be a great study. Let me also encourage you one more time as we begin that, that there may be some ways that we could look at this. Some people would say, well, they're not so much the names, quote unquote, the names of God, as they are descriptions of God. And that's really what we want to be encouraged by, thinking about the way these names explain about God to us. We said last week, you use somebody's first name sometimes when you get on a more comfortable basis. It may be a sir or a ma'am. It may be a, a mister or a missus or something like that until you become familiar, until you know something about somebody. And so as we think about being Christians and serving the Most High God, it's important that we understand who He is and we're going to learn that as we consider his names that he gives us through his inspired word. I mentioned to you that I was borrowing some outlines from a, another good friend of mine, and he had had about nine total and said that he felt like it got a little bit long through all of those. And so we're going to try to connect some of these and really bring them together. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me because we're going to try to cover a couple in just a short amount of time this morning, but I think it will be encouraging. The first name we're going to talk about is Elohim. Now, today, this is the first name in the first verse. If you have your outline, that's the beginning of what you have there. It's the first name in the first 
verse. Now, if you're making notes and you're filling out the outline, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and make an asterisk out beside of that, and you can write that it is the first word of the Bible. Now, some people would say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher, that's not right. You, you know, that's not what the Bible says, don't you? We said it's Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. But you know, if you look back to the original language, as we think about the Hebrew, and sometimes it's rearranged a little differently than it is in our English language. In the Hebrew language, the Bible begins with the word Elohim, with the word God. So it's the first name of God that's found in the Bible, the first name in the first verse, and we might even go so far as to say that it is the first word. What a better place to start than to consider this idea of Elohim. I think this is where I'm stepping. Maybe the problem. Get it on there. All right. Now, that may be a great way to keep all y'all awake through this lesson, but I think you may also be scared through most of it as well. So that's all right. Uh, so Elohim is the first name of God that we read about in the Bible. If you have your outline there, you'd notice that it says that the word is the most often used name. It's used 2,500 times in the Bible, and again, the most often we might say. Now, the only caveat there that we might kind of quibble over is some people, and we're going to come back and talk about this, but we talk about the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah. Some people would con consider that to be God's name, and you're going to see as we go through some of these that there is Jehovah this or Jehovah that. So when we kind of back up from that and think about some different things, we're going to talk about this idea of Elohim being the most frequently used name of God in the Bible, 2,500 times as we think about it. It's actually used 32 times in Genesis chapter 1. Have you ever tried to memorize or look at Genesis chapter 1? But it is, as we think about how many times the word God, Elohim, is used there. Now, it's also the only plural name. It's also the only plural name for God. And of course, that seems to point toward the triune nature of God. We don't have time to get into a deep discussion of that this morning, but you're no doubt familiar with the idea of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as you think about this triune nature of God or the Trinity, as people often say, this is the name that is the only plural name for God that is used in the Bible and seems to point towards that. Now, God starts off his revelation to us by explaining this idea, telling us that he is the creator and the sustainer of life. So as you have your notes there, you see two different lines in your notes in the outline that say Elohim. And the first one where it says Elohim has, if you want to make another note out to the side, we're going to talk about, first of all, Elohim and creation. Or excuse me, I messed that up. Elohim and eternity. And then the second one we're going to talk about is Elohim and creation. Elohim and eternity, first of all, in the beginning, right? Genesis begins with this idea. Many people may ask, where is it that God comes from? Have you ever got that question from a child? It's usually that one we kind of want to avoid sometimes because it's kind of hard to explain. You know, where did God come from? Many people ask that. But the Bible is very clear from the beginning that he has always been. In fact, that's the line there in your notes. Elohim has always existed. Now, if you're like me, 
we sit down and try to comprehend that, and that's a bit of a brain scratcher, right? That's a bit of a head shaker. We could sit and spend all day. We could spend the rest of the day sitting right here trying to discuss that and understand that, and I think we still have trouble comprehending that Elohim has always existed. In fact, we know that this is encouraging to us because evolutionists can't even come up with the very first source for the very first atom, right? Even the, the very most minuscule kind of thing in this world, in this environment, they can't come up with an answer because they don't have it. They start talking about primordial soup or they start talking about a big bang or all these things to explain how things existed. But even then, you notice that there's got to be a beginning for that primordial soup or that big bang. They can't figure it out. But Elohim has always existed. In fact, believers, as believers, as Christians, we don't even have to make something up. We don't even have to kind of keep fishing and trying to figure out what's going on because we just believe simply what God says. And Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is a simple, simple declaration that we already said there in your notes. And that is this idea that Elohim has always existed. He just simply is. We touched on this idea last week about the idea of God being the I am. Not the has been, not the will be, but just simply the I am. And we sort of see this encouragement as well when it comes to this idea of Elohim and eternity. If God is, if God simply is, what's the significance? Because that's a simple statement to make, right? Somebody says God is. What does that mean? What's the significance of that kind of statement? Well, with God simply being, if God is, if God is everything, then that reminds us that wrong can be made right. That reminds us that with all the chaos that we see in the world around us, that there can be order, that there is hope for the hopeless, that there is help for the helpless. If God is, then we have an answer for all the struggles that we face here. I don't know how people do it sometimes. They've got to feel hopeless. They've got to feel helpless because they have nothing they can believe in. And can I tell you something that you already know? If you start relying on people on this earth, they're going to let you down. I don't care how much they love you. I don't care how close you are. Maybe you're close to your parents. Maybe you're not. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's your children. It's not. Whatever it might be, people are going to let you down. That's the nature of being human. But when God is... When he is Elohim and he is for all eternity, then we don't have to worry about that. God is is a significant statement because it reminds us that everything in life has purpose. Everything in life has meaning. Both the good things that we face and the negative things that we face. Both the good times and the bad times. Via Elohim, this idea God declares that for all eternity, he is, he always has been, and he always will be. So that's the idea of Elohim and eternity, but let's talk about Elohim and creation. If you have your outline there, the, the next line down, Elohim created, right? Because that's the encouraging thing when we read Genesis chapter 1. He created out of nothing. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God created, the word there, the Hebrew word is bara, B-A-R-A, -A, created. But it carries more with it in this idea of made something. You see, we give our kids Play-Doh and they can make something. But they didn't make it out of nothing. We gave them something to begin with. Again, even back to that idea of evolution. But God, bara, he created, and there's a Latin phrase that you may have heard before, this idea of ex nihilo, out of nothing. 
God breathed. God spoke and it was so. We sometimes feel that way as parents maybe or as adults when we can say that something needs to be done and it's accomplished. But it's so much more than that when God created out of nothing everything that we see around us. Boy, it's been a nice couple of days, hadn't it? Especially weather-wise, that's what I mean. We think about this, the temperature in the air and we see that we feel that fall is coming. And you know as well as I know that there's no better place in the world than to live in these valleys and around these mountains in just the next couple of months. It comes and it goes so fast, but it's so beautiful to think about this world that God created and created out of nothing. When we think about Elohim, it is encouraging to know that he is the creator. In fact, we are not here out of chance, but we are here because God created us. He designed us. He's given us providence in which we can see him working. That is the idea of Elohim that we read about in the Bible. Elohim means that he is the sovereign creator. He's the sovereign creator of all the things that, it, that are around us. And again, we might even say both the good and even the bad in the sense that we as humans sometimes succumb to our sinful nature and we submit to the sinful ways and we sin. He is the sovereign creator who existed prior to creation and he spoke all of creation into existence. You know, some people will say, preacher, are you asking us to choose faith over science? Of course not. God, Elohim, created science. I mean, everything, it's such a great study to consider all of the, how things work together and the way that he created all of this. God made science and it's not hurtful, it's not harmful for us to look around us and begin to connect things together, to simply see how he designed nature to work. Evolution is not science. Evolution doesn't even abide by the scientific nature, the scientific laws. If you were to talk to some scientists, they would probably give you something that doesn't connect with other things when you start trying to fit evolution in there. But creation can be observed, as we said. There are things that can be proven. But here's the thing. Can we repeat creation? Not in the way that God did, right? Again, I can sit here all day and try to breathe existence and life into things, but I can't do it. We can certainly make things out of what God has already given us, but God is the one who is the creator. So real quick, why is this important? Why should this even matter to us? Well, if God is, if he is Elohim, if he is for all of eternity and he is the creator, then we're here by design. And if we're here by design, then life has purpose and it has meaning. You may have to go out to work. You may have to go to a job. You may have to do things that aren't the most exciting in life day in and day out, but you still have a purpose. Life still has meaning. You're still trying to obtain something as we think about this idea, of course, of trying to get to heaven. He created us. He created us accountable to him. He created us under his authority. If he is not, we're saying if God is, but if he is not, then we're not accountable. We are just animals. We can just live however we want to live. And you probably can agree that maybe there's some pleasurable ways in that, just doing whatever we want to do. But we know that it's not going to bring anything but more sin and destruction and pain and suffering. If he is not, then we're just animals struggling to survive. But you see, he is. And that's encouraging to think about. He is Elohim. If there is no Elohim, no eternal creator, then there is no good and evil. There is no right and wrong. There is no truth or falsehood. There are no absolutes. There is no sin. 
and no Savior. But if Elohim is, then He created everything. He has existed eternally. He tells us about sin, and He sent a Savior so that we could be saved from that sin. Genesis 1.1 is God telling us fundamentally who He is. He is Elohim. And that should be encouraging to us. But number two this morning, let's think secondly, moving on then to this idea of Adonai. Again, God's name is telling him so much about us. You may be familiar with Adonai, but it tells us that he is Lord of all. If you're filling in your blanks there, he is Lord of all. Now, Adonai is used frequently as well. It's used some 400 plus times in the Old Testament. 400 plus times in the Old Testament, and there's a Greek word, kurios, that's used some 680 times in the New Testament. So it's used frequently as well, this idea of Lord. Now let's think in the back half of this lesson about several things that encourage us as we think about what it means for God to be Lord or Adonai. There's four main things that we're going to notice there together, then the lesson will be yours. Number one, Adonai indicates ownership. Ownership. The first top hand left set of blanks there if you're looking at a bulletin. Adonai indicates ownership. I am in God's possession. In fact, some of you have bought houses or maybe sold houses before, and, and if you've done that, which a lot of us have probably as adults, there is nothing, right, more cumbersome than all that it takes to sign over a house or to buy a house and to go through that paperwork of signing your name what feels like 9,000 times in order to do that. It doesn't take 9,000 times, but when I become a Christian, in a similar way, I sign over the deed, the title deed of my life to God. I am owned by God. I am God's possession. Now, we live in a world where people don't want to think about that, right? They don't like to consider this idea of being owned by somebody. And, and certainly we understand with the idea of master and slave and, and things like that, it can carry a real negative connotation. But the idea that I am, as a Christian, in God's possession is a wonderful and encouraging thing. Have you ever sung the song before? I am mine no more. And have you meant the words to it? I am mine no more. I belong to him. He is my owner. In fact, not only that, not only do I belong to God, but we take it a step further and we say all of my possessions belong to God. I'm simply a steward of what he has given me. Does that include our money? Sure it does. Does that include our stuff? Sure it does. Does that include our family? Sure it does. Our children? Absolutely. A steward is one who manages the affairs of another. So we are simply managers of things that really belong to God. Something being in my possession does not make it mine. Right? You think about maybe borrowing something. Just because I have something in my hands doesn't mean that it's mine. It could be somebody else's. The same thing is true with all of our stuff. Just because we have it doesn't mean it's ours. It belongs to God who has blessed us with all good and perfect gifts. I have been entrusted with all of this stuff. Can we add in there? Not just the stuff, but our time, our words, our children, our family. All of this, we are simply good stewards and we have been entrusted to use it for His glory. I'm a steward of my time. Again, Ephesians 5, 16. Paul would write there, Be not unwise, but redeeming the time. 
you struggle with time management? Do you struggle with doing things in the right time or with your time? We're to be stewards of our time, not just our money only. We are, though, of course, stewards of our money. We think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, and, and even again in verse 24, that we are not to lay up treasures here on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up treasure in heaven. We are stewards of our time. We're stewards of our money. We're stewards of our children. Think about Psalm 127 in verses 4 and 5. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty warrior or a mighty man, so are the children are children of thy youth. Happy is the man that have a quiver full of them, that has a quiver full of them. We are to be good stewards of our children as well. This list could go on and on and on, but we recognize if God is Adonai, if he is Lord, then we are in his possession and all of our stuff then, we are simply stewards that, of the things that belong to him. Do you treat God that way? Is he Lord of you? Does he have ownership? You know, we talk sometimes about this idea that we've got a bunch of water back here and we can make people wet. But when you talk about being baptized, becoming a Christian, there's supposed to be a change. There's supposed to be a change in your life. Again, the idea of signing over the deed, the title. You make a change and you become in the possession of God. Not just simply getting wet. Not just simply going through the motions. But truly making Him Lord. There's to be a change. A change of ownership. Number two, Adonai indicates lordship. Lordship. Have I surrendered everything to Him? Have I surrendered everything to him as Lord? Lordship, of course, is all about authority. You remember in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission, but how does he begin that? He begins by saying, all authority has been given to me. He has the authority. So if he is Lord, then Lordship is about that. You know, many people call Jesus Lord, but few people actually want to submit to his authority. The true test of whether or not a person, whether you belong to Jesus and whether you will be saved is whether or not you submit to his authority. That's why Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. If you were with us, I preached on that a, a couple of months ago, I believe it was. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? I, I picture Jesus, I don't mean to be irreverent again, but, but I picture Jesus as frustrating as we can be sometimes. As parents, why are you calling me dad, but you're not going to do what I tell you to do? Why are you calling me mom, but you're not willing to listen to what I say? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21, he makes that statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You see, a lot of people today want to make excuses for their sin. And sometimes one of the things, we just talked about this in our college age and young adult class a few moments ago. But one thing that some people will do to excuse themselves is they'll say this idea, well, you know, they'll just judge me. You know, I feel too ashamed to come back because of what I've done. Maybe that's true for some people. Maybe there are some Christians over here who judge a little bit too much and they kind of get worried about and they are worried about what everybody's doing as opposed to themselves. But for many people, that's simply an excuse because they don't want to submit and they don't want to change. When we think about this idea of lordship, 
The true test of whether you belong to Jesus and will be saved is whether you submit to his authority. You see, we are wired for submission. Here's the thing I want to make the point real quick before we move on. We as humans are wired for submission to something. We are made to worship something. You may think, nah, not me. Again, I'm not submitting. I don't want anybody over me. But we all serve something. We will be a slave to sin or we will be a slave to Christ. We will be a slave to sin or we will be a slave to righteousness, as Paul would write about in Romans chapter 6. James chapter 4 and verse 7 reminds us that it is mandatory if we want to be saved. James would write, submit yourselves therefore to God. Lordship, if Adonai indicates lordship, lordship means that I will submit to his authority, period. Not trying to find a caveat, not trying to find a little wiggle room, but I will submit to what he has told me to do. That is Adonai, Lord. Number three, Adonai indicates discipleship. Of course, discipleship, you can write out beside the side there if you're making notes, but discipleship is followship. Notice the difference, not fellow, followship. That's what discipleship is. It means being a servant. By the way, that's not any different than what God has always required. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me in my house, it's always been a matter of choice. It's always been about being a servant. Joshua says essentially there, once again, you will serve something. So will you serve God? Or will you serve the gods of your fathers over on the other side of the river? Just a couple of weeks ago in our vacation Bible school, in our lessons around that day, we talked about Elijah. What did Elijah say on Mount Carmel? How long will you go between two opinions? How long will you go between two sides because what you're essentially trying to do is straddle the fence and say you can do both when in reality you're going to do one or the other. Adonai indicates discipleship or followship. Of course, with that, being a disciple or a servant means serving others as Jesus would. That certainly means people in the world, but it also means people right here in this room, people within this congregation, that we would be true servants. And here's the question. Am I a servant only when it's necessary? Am I a servant only when it's mandatory? When it's easy? When it's convenient? See, I look around this room and, and I know there are people here and there are others at other congregations and lots of people in the world who will sometimes sign up to do anything as long as it's not too hard or doesn't require too much of my time or something along those lines. If we are a servant, are we a servant only when it's easy, convenient, or Mandatory. You remember again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about all these other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. They'll come. God will take care of you. But you've got to be a servant. You've got to seek first his kingdom. Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter at the straight gate. For many will seek to enter in and shall not be able is that what we're striving to do, to be a servant? Number four, Adonai indicates relationship. Relationship. Think about God's covenant with his people. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. 
Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, he reminds us that he will not leave us nor forsake us. When we think about his encouraging words, that our conduct, the Hebrew writer says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's great, God. That's a great comment. But what does that mean? The writer goes on to say, so that we may then boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I don't, didn't pick a particular movie out in my head, but maybe you've seen one of those movies where, where there's a, a, a character, the main character maybe, who's kind of always beat down on or, or bullied or picked on or whatever, and then somebody finally gives him that little, those few words of wisdom, that little nugget that it then encourages him or her to step up and to say, now with this strength I can go on, I can go forward. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Guess what that should do for us? It should strengthen us, remind us that we have a relationship and there is nothing that we can't do with him on our side. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I don't need anybody else. I don't need anything else here. We're thankful for the relationship we have with fellow Christians, but it's our relationship with God. As God's covenant people, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We notice as well that he will defend his people. Psalm 29 and verse 11. Psalm 29, 11, The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Here's your good scripture reference to go look up. The book of Revelation. We've been talking a little bit about it on Wednesday night. I know it seems confusing and a lot, but you, have you ever understood that the message is simply victory? Victory in Jesus. Victory in God. That's the message of Revelation, that He will defend His people. Yes, those people who were reading that early in the first century and the trials and tribulations they were going through, but yes, also to us today. God will never leave us. He will defend us. Our total trust can be placed in Him knowing that He is faithful. God is Elohim. God is Adonai. He is Creator. He is Sustainer. He is Lord. You see, the question this morning as we begin then to conclude this lesson is that lip service is not enough. We absolutely, some Sundays... Depending on the songs that we sing, we sit here in these pews and we say, Lord. We say, Lord, Lord. We sing songs calling Him Lord. But the question is, is that just lip service or is it total life surrender? Do you recognize that this indicates ownership and lordship, discipleship, and a relationship with Him? There is not an inch of any aspect of your life of which God does not say, that is mine. Now, if you're like me, that sounds a bit intrusive. And that sounds a little uncomfortable, right? Even sometimes so much as we have our relationships and our families and our spouses, we sometimes, even in marriage, even though we say that it's all one and we're now united, we still sometimes have things that we say, well, that's mine, right? Whether it be a room or, or it be a section of the house or this area, we say, that's, that's mine. You know, that's off limits. That just belongs to dad or to, to mom or whatever. It's not so with God. There's no dark corner. 
There's no closet. There is nothing that we can say does not belong to Him. The question this morning is, do you belong to Him? Yes, certainly in an aspect, in one way, He controls it all. It all belongs to Him whether or not you name Him Lord. But would you this morning consider naming Him as Lord? Would you consider submitting to His authority? Do you follow Him? Are you His child? Can you pray to Him and call Him Adonai? Or do you hesitate? Because you know, deep down inside, you know it all belongs to Him, but you're having a little trouble giving it up because it's yours, and you don't want to think that it all belongs to Him, that He truly is Lord of all. It is amazing what Adonai can do when we totally surrender to Him. This morning, as we're about to sing this song of encouragement, there may be someone in this audience that has never named the name of God, that's never named the name of Christ, put on Christ in baptism to have your sins washed away. We'll be singing in just a moment to encourage you that you would become a Christian, that you would totally submit to Him. Make Him God and Father, make Him Lord. If you'd like to know more about that, we would study with you as soon as possible so that you can make that most important decision in this life, to totally submit to Him Totally submit to a Savior, have your sins washed away, to be added to the church by the Lord, and to begin to live faithfully. But the possibility also exists that there's someone here this morning who is a child of God, but maybe you've wandered away. Maybe there's sin in your life that's separating you from God, that you can't fully say, Lord. We're thankful for a good eldership, as has already been said this morning, that one of our elders will be coming forward in just a moment that would love to pray with you and for you. But even beyond that, We've got a group of people who love you, who care for you, who want to encourage you in any way possible. See, God is Lord, but he also, Jesus, left behind his church that we can encourage one another, even through the singing of a song such as this, that if you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'd love to encourage you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.